And you are listening to the WOKV Spotlight on the District 5 race here in Florida. My name is Kevin Rafuse, and we're doing these spotlights ahead of, of the Florida primary on August 30th. And joining me in studio today, running for Congress in District 5, is Glow Smith. Glow, how are you today? I am doing well, Kevin. How are you? Oh, pretty good. No complaints. We're just uh, here working our way to the weekend. But let's get right into it. Let's not waste any more time. So you have the distinction in this race of, well, not only being fortunate enough to kind of avoid the August 30th primary and getting right onto the ballot in November, but also being the lone Republican running in this race. So I guess the first question is, what makes you different running as a Republican than the other Democratic candidates in this race? I think it just goes back to our principles and our values, the values of the conservative party, which is smaller government, more um, individual responsibility. We look forward to being able to provide opportunities for people to better themselves and to have their own prosperity in the way that they define it. And so I think when we look at those things, um, it defines You know, I don't think that we need to have a candidate that wants bigger government, more taxes, uh, more control of our lives every day. So I think that's one of the most um, distinguishing factors that set me apart from the other candidates. We talk about discussing or providing opportunities, I should say, and we've seen tremendous growth here in Northeast Florida in the past few years. Um, Amazon, for example, another big company coming to the north side of Jacksonville. And overall, uh, Forbes.com actually released a study that found Jacksonville is the second most attractive destination for people moving. Only Tampa here in Florida is ahead of it. So I guess the question is, what would you do to continue the positive job growth here in Northeast Florida? Well, I think the job growth needs to continue, but unfortunately, Kevin, it's not happening in the Florida's 5th District. The current district, which is from Jacksonville to Orlando, nor in the new district from Jacksonville to Tallahassee. In fact, last night I was in Tallahassee talking about economic development and how do we bring jobs to Tallahassee. And so I think when we look at the jobs that are coming, how many people from the Florida's 5th District are being employed by those jobs? It's, It's a very low number, and that's very concerning. So I would like to see more economic development actually not only in the 5th District, but um, opportunities for employment for people who live in the 5th District outside of the area. So with the 5th District being redrawn in, in the Supreme Court decision last year, and now you said stretching west to Tallahassee, unlike going south to Orlando, what type of opportunities and what type of changes does that mean for the district overall? Well, I think what we see now, instead of running in a district, honestly, where before from Jacksonville to Orlando, when you looked at this district and compared it to the other 26, we had such, and we still do have a high unemployment rate. I and mean, when you looked at the people on entitlement programs more in the 5th District than any other district, um, when you when you put it to size and of population. And so now the new area, I think what's really interesting is that we find a lot of Democrats, but they are conservative. Um, in the old 5th District, we didn't necessarily see a lot of people that were Second Amendment people, but we definitely see it in the rural areas from Jacksonville to Gaston, or Duval County to Gaston County. So I think that um, in and of itself is interesting. And I think the people that I've had opportunity to meet are just looking for a candidate that wants to represent all the people. We want to remove party and do what's best with the 5th and make us relevant in our state and our country. So you mentioned the Second Amendment there, and that's an issue that's really come up a lot in recent months. We saw in Orlando, for example, the uh, big nightclub shooting at Pulse Nightclub. Almost 50 people died, and we've seen a number of mass shooting incidents across the United States. And the reaction has been different on both sides of the aisle. We've seen Democrats call for more gun control, Republicans, on the other hand, leaning back more towards the Second Amendment and focusing more on a mental health perspective. I guess, where do you fall when it comes to this, and how do we stop these type of mass shooting events? Well, I am definitely 100 
100% Second Amendment. I believe that um, uh, citizens of this country have a right to arm themselves. And so I look at not only the lives that are being lost by guns, but what about the lives that are being lost every day from alcohol and drug-related um, accidents and incidents? And what about the crime rate? So I, um, I definitely don't support any um, legislation that would move to remove um, the Second Amendment or to amend the Second Amendment. Well, you mentioned the crime rate, and we know specifically in the northwest part of Jacksonville, that's a major issue, a lot a lot of violence going on, and which is a, a big part of District 5 for people who aren't quite as familiar with the map. I guess what needs to be done in these communities to lower the crime rate and give people more opportunity? Well, I think when you talk about crime rate, and I have to tell you, I'm really biased because I'm married to a 32-year law enforcement officer. Um, our daughter is a prosecuting attorney for the state attorney's office, and I'm also the mother of two black sons. So the crime rate on the north side, but not only on the north side, but throughout this entire district um, concerns me. And I think that we have to look at cases, not only individually, but look at what's going on in the community. Are we being proactive? Are we providing opportunities and resources for people and our young children? I think that when there is an opportunity for people not to have jobs and to have a lot of out of time um, on their hands, that things begin to occur. So um, I think we need to look at nonprofit organizations, law enforcement, as well as our um, state attorney's office and our public defender's office and figure out ways that we can work together to address the issue. Um, as long as we continue on the path that we're on, I think we're going to continue to see more young people committing acts of crime, whether they're very violent or um, something that may be a misdemeanor. So I think that we just have to have conversation and we have to be proactive and it has to start at an early age. Um, you know, um, I was at the state attorney's debate the other night and they just mentioned um, how many young people just over the last couple of weeks have been arrested for these very serious crimes. And so I have to look at what happening in the home and then what support do we have wrapped around the home to support um, families whether they're single parent families or or, or or traditional families or however the makeup of the family is what do we have and what are we doing in school to address these issues well you mentioned that you're married to a police officer and a big issue that's been coming up across the country has been the relations between police and in the communities on both sides of the coin we've seen uh, different incidents in recent months we know in Dallas and Baton Rouge we saw police officers killed we also saw recently the deaths of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Philando Castile in Minnesota. I guess what do we do to kind of repeal or repair, I should say, this divide that's going on right now between police and the communities? And that way we make sure that both the communities the police serve are protected as well as the officers themselves. Right. I think the first thing we do is understand that the media has a bias and that they would take these incidents and these horrible things that are happening. And I would agree and my husband would agree that there are officers or um, there are some bad apples. Um, in, in any industry. But I think that we have to look at it on a case-by-case basis and get the whole story before we jump to a conclusion. And if it's, in ca- if it's in fact a case where the law enforcement officer is wrong, then we have to address that. If it's a case where the victim who's been murdered by the police officer is wrong. But more importantly, we have been polarized to believe that white police officers are going around killing black young men. And the fact is that that does occur, but black men kill black men, white people kill white people, and it's not about the race. It's about the life. And I think that as we start having these conversations, you know, I tell people, don't be a part of the problem and don't 
you know, be a part of a conversation that you don't have the facts on. So, you know, we have Black Lives Matter. I say all lives matter. And, and, and in fact, I said at a debate a couple of weeks ago with the um, Democratic um, candidates in this race is that, you know, the reality is that all lives are precious. It doesn't matter what the color of the skin is. It doesn't matter the person's walk of life. And I think until we start to un- understand that and identify that, we're going to continue to see things happening, not just with law enforcement, but just crime in general. So I want to switch gears a little bit now, and it's an issue that's come up on both sides of the aisle, really. We've seen calls for immigration reform, and they've certainly varied. We saw President Obama's executive actions, for example. They've been stalled by the Supreme Court, but he was talking about um, amnesty, essentially, and a few other things to reform immigration. And on the other hand, you have Donald Trump going as far as calling for a wall across our southern border. But regardless, calls on both sides of the aisles. You know, What do you think needs to be done to fix our immigration system. I think first we have to have a um, not a conversation, but just look at the realities of what is happening. Let's look at what laws we have that are working, the ones that are not working, and the ones that are being completely ignored. Like you mentioned, President Obama and his administrative actions have said, uh, have caused a lot of um, issues, I think, and has really confused a lot of people. You've had the Supreme Court who has now said to the president that he has overstepped his authority. And so we have to look at How do we protect America? And are we going to be a nation of laws and rules? And are we going to be a nation that have open borders? I do not support that idea. I think that we need to protect our walls. I think we need to understand who's coming into our country. And we should not have an open gate. Um, A lot of times people say, well, what do you want to do with all the illegal um, um, immigrants that are here now? And I say, you know what? We need to make sure that, uh, first of all, we, we talk about how they got here, what are they doing, and how do we get them back to wherever they came from and bring them back into this country the right way. We cannot have a country where our borders are not protected and that we allow anyone to come in. You know, uh, we just finished looking at uh, speaking really a couple of weeks ago about how many people are being uh, placed here in Florida from Syria and what people are coming with no identification whatsoever, whether they're men, women or children. And so I think that those are things that we have to be honestly uh, have an honest conversation about let's not make it a partisan issue, but let's make it a national issue and address what those problems are and come up with solutions that are going to be beneficial to our country and keep our country safe. And you just mentioned the wave of refugees coming from Syria. We know President Obama's trying to resettle them. Governor Scott's called for a stay, and that's certainly a big part of the immigration issue, but it all extends as the bigger picture, which is the fight against the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria. So far, we've seen air campaigns against ISIS. We've seen special forces on the ground in both of those countries. You know, What do you feel or how do you feel our response to ISIS has been so far? And I guess, do you think it needs to be more aggressive? Do you think we're on the right path? What do you think? I think that we have to continue what the president has started, but it needs to be um, increased. I think when you send, well, first of all, when you tie the hands of the military in order to go in and do a job that they need to do and to be able to come back home, you know, safe, that's a problem. And then when you bring in only a certain amount of people and you tell the American people there's no boots on the ground and they're going to be acting in an advisory capacity, then I think those things are wrong. And so I think that this um, campaign that the current administration has put forth has not been um, maybe in some ways it's working but I don't think it's the right way. I think that we need to have our experts in the area and our president listen to um, our generals and just all the experts and say uh, that's telling him what needs to be done and he needs to do it. 
When you mention Jacksonville, I think it goes without saying that this is a huge military town. We obviously know the presence of Mayport, NAS Jax as well, but a whole lot of veterans from all different fights over the years are settled here on the First Coast. And we've seen a number of issues with the VA system, veterans not being able to get the care that they need in a timely fashion, or in some cases, not even at all. What do you think needs to be done to the VA to fix it and ensure it's working? Right. I think one of the things that we have to do is maybe even look at privatizing the VA, but definitely bringing service in to our veterans all over this country that will benefit them. You know, there is no reason why veterans should have to wait months and months and months to be seen by a doctor when we have private doctors in our community. So let's figure out if it's the medical issue, then let's figure out a way to for for all of us as American citizens to say we appreciate what you've done and the sacrifices you've made for us and our country. And so we want in return to do the things that are right by you. And one of the biggest problems I hear still centers around medical care and the like thereof and the like of housing. You know, in Jacksonville, um, there's such a huge population of women that are homeless and they're veterans that ought not to be in 2016, definitely in our country. So there's a lot of issues that I get to um, speak with the veterans about, whether it's employment or um, whether it's some of the mental illnesses that they come back and the challenges uh, come back with and the challenges that they're facing. I just think it's time for us to take responsibility, get excuses out the way and make sure that we have service services in place that are efficient and effective and most of all most of all um the uh veterans can take advantage of right now and, and get rid of you know no nonsense no nonsense uh waiting lists it's one that's got people concerned across the country, but realistically here in Florida, as we have the most cases of the Zika virus in the country, really it's not even close, well over 400 cases at this point. Congress has not passed any funding, actually went on recess without passing any type of funding. What do you think we need to do to really reel this virus in and prevent this from turning into a nationwide outbreak? Well, you know, you said something that's very interesting. How could Congress go on, re- go on recess without addressing this issue? It is very serious. Um, I think that they need to be called back to address this issue. We need funding. Um, Governor Scott has been very clear from day one of what Florida needs, but more importantly around this country, this is something that we have to attack head on and, and, and be proactive about it and get in front of this. Um, we know that these cases are occurring. Babies are being born um, in this in this. Uh, state with this virus. And so I say we we bring Congress back in. And, and that's another thing. That should not be a partisan issue. That's an American issue. And it's something that we have to take care of. So I always like to end things on a lighter note. We know that there are four different candidates running for the seat in District 5 right now. And again, I said earlier in the interview, you have the luxury of not having to worry about the primary on the 30th, but you will be on the ballot come November as you try to win that seat in District 5. Really would be the first Republican there in a while. But strictly talking on a you basis, what makes you uniquely the most qualified person to represent District 5 in Congress? Well, I think that one, I'm just not that person who's been a career politician. When you look at the two leading candidates on the other side um, combined collectively. They have over 60 years of um, experience doing the same old, same old that has not worked for this state, that has not worked for this district, and definitely not has worked for our country. And so what makes me uniquely different is I'm a product of District 5. I was born and raised in this district. Um, Congresswoman Corrine Brown has always been my representative since she's been a congresswoman. And uh, I just realized that what we have been doing is not working. Again, when you look at the unemployment rate in our district, it's um, 
it's really um, embarrassing when you look at the number of people that are on entitlement programs. So I am one who could tell, you know, I come from a mom who was on welfare. I understand what government commodities are. I understand what it's like to live in the projects because that's where I came from. But I am that American citizen who believes in the opportunities that this country affords us and that I have the experience of more than 30 years of experience in working in public and social services. I've had the honor of working for Lieutenant Governor Jennifer Carroll and Governor Scott. So I come from this community and understand this community. But I will tell you, I'm learning a lot about the new rural areas and the issues that are concerning them. So I think those are some of the things that make me different. And and people can definitely visit Glow for Congress to find out more about me, uh, my professional and my personal bio, as well as the issues that are very concerning to me. And you've been listening to the WOKV Spotlight on the District 5 race for Congress. My name is Kevin Rafuse, and I've been joined in studio today by Glow Smith. Glow, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me.